If you have that little Are You New card from the bulletin, you can drop that in the offering basket as well when it comes, when it comes by. While, you're, uh, while the, that's going along, if you want to find Acts chapter 2, we will be continuing our series through Acts. The series is called Unstoppable. And uh, when you're a pastor and you preach, sometimes you like to write your own sermons and sometimes you get to preach somebody else's sermon, right? And this morning, I get to preach somebody else's sermon, which is kind of fun. It's a sermon that was actually given by the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 2. And so I will try to, uh, I will try to do it justice, um, but nobody's quite like the Apostle Peter, right? But, but the, the, the whole question of preaching a sermon, why do we do that? What's, what's the whole point of preaching a sermon? Why do Christians every week gather in churches and listen to somebody, stand on a, a platform and talk? Uh, why do we do that? Well, sermons have been part of Christianity from the very beginning. We've been in Acts chapter 2. We've seen uh, the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost. We looked at that last week, the first little section in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out and Christianity began. That was the day in which Christianity began. The church was born and right on that very same day, the birthday of the church, there was a sermon And it's Peter's sermon from Acts chapter 2. And if you read through all of Peter's sermon, it takes you about three minutes. And you say, gee, Andy, you preach a lot longer than that. Times change. (laughs) Sermons have been part of Christianity from the very beginning. In fact, the, the book of Acts has 19 sermons in it. 19 sermons throughout this book and and all throughout Christian history, uh, pastors and leaders get up and they talk about the Bible and they proclaim the gospel. And so the sermon that we're going to look at today, the very first Christian sermon ever given in history, as the very first sermon ever preached, it is the defining message of our faith. This sermon that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2 is the the fundamental essence of Christianity. If you boil away everything that, that churches talk about today, you boil it all down to this message that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2. It is the bedrock of our faith. It is the foundation of who we are. It is the very core of our identity. Jesus said that in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18. Jesus was telling Peter this. He said, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What was the rock on which Jesus built his church? It wasn't Peter. Peter died. It was the message that Peter preached in Acts chapter two. On this message, on this sermon, this sermon, this message, this news that Peter announces in Acts chapter two, this is the rock on which God will build his church and the gates of hell will not be able to hold it back. They cannot withstand the message that Peter gave in Acts chapter two. This gospel, 
This good news, this sermon is literally a life changer. It is a world changer. It is a game changer. It is the message that forms the foundation of who we are. It is our eternal hope. It is the good news that changes every single aspect of our lives. You can't hear this message and accept it and stay the same. It will change you. And throughout the last 2,000 years, this fundamental message of Christianity has overpowered darkness everywhere that it's gone. The gates of hell have not been able to withstand this message that Peter gave. This is the bedrock of our faith. It is the truth that changes every generation and every life. And the question that we have as we look at Peter's message is, what is it? (laughs) What What did Peter preach? What is the bedrock of our faith? What is the heart of Christianity at its essence, at its most basic. What is Christianity all about? What's the bedrock of our faith? That's what we're going to talk about in Acts chapter 2. We'll start with verse 14. Now, Acts chapter 2, 14 to 41, it's a long passage. So I'm not going to read the whole thing all at once. We're just going to jump right into what Peter is talking about. And I will try my best to preach Peter's sermon that he has recorded for us in Acts chapter two. What is the bedrock of our faith? First, it's this. God made a promise. God gave his word. He made a promise. What did he promise? He promised two things, but, but look, let's look at his promise. In Acts chapter two, verse 14, this happened, so, so the, the Holy Spirit was poured out as the day of Pentecost. People started speaking in tongues. There was fire. There was a sound like a blowing wind. Uh, people from all over the world were gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate this holiday, the day of Pentecost. And they heard God being praised in their own languages. And so they all gathered around to see what this great commotion was. And Peter stood up to preach the gospel. But, but um, as they were seeing these events and as the, the people were speaking in tongues and, and everything, they were amazed, they were perplexed. They said, what does this mean? And some people said, oh, this is just, uh, they're drunk. They've had too much wine. And that's where we ended last week. Then verse 14 picks it up and Peter says, no, God made a promise. Then Peter stood up with the 11. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. It's five o'clock somewhere, but it's nine o'clock there, right? They're not drunk. This isn't, this isn't the, the mindless babble of a bunch of drunks. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. They haven't had time to get drunk yet. These people are not drunk as you suppose. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And then here is God's promise. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God 
made a promise. That's Peter's first point. This isn't, this isn't just a random event. These people aren't drunk. No, this is God's promise. And God promised two things. He promised to give his Holy Spirit. Verse 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. He promised to give his Holy Spirit. We talked a lot about that last week when we saw the Holy Spirit poured out in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. So I would refer you back to last week's message. If you missed it, it's online. You can, you can listen to what that means. But really, I, I want to pull back three things from last week. When, when you uh, put your faith in Jesus Christ, when this uh, promise is fulfilled, the Holy Spirit does this in our lives. He gives us the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Every person who believes in Jesus receives God the Holy Spirit living in them. So we have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We have the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. He changes us. He makes us more like Jesus all the time. He produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And third, every believer in Christ has available to them the infilling power of the Holy Spirit. Luke calls that the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of Acts. And that's when the Holy Spirit comes on a believer in Christ with supernatural power to enable them to be a witness for the Lord in some way. So we we have the Holy Spirit. God promised to give us the Holy Spirit. That was one of the things that he promised. He, He also promised to forgive our sins. That's what, he, that's what he meant in uh, verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the judgment of our sins on the great and glorious day of the Lord. Right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved from judgment of sin. Your sins will be forgiven. See, when Jesus returns, he will come back with judgment of sin with a, it, that will be a day of reckoning um, when you were a kid and you were kind of uh, you know acting out a little bit being a little turd to your mom did your mom ever say to you wait until your dad gets home right wait until your dad gets home whenever my mom said that to me I would always go and run and find every pair of underwear I had and put it on Get a little extra padding for when dad gets home, right? Now that's a funny story and we've, we've all experienced things like that. But let's, let's think about it in the real world. We were created by God. And ever since then, we have been living in outright rebellion against our creator. We lie. We cheat. We cheat to get our kids into big schools. Right? We lie, we cheat, we steal, we hurt others, we abuse people emotionally and physically and spiritually. We murder each other, we torture each other, people rape each other. We have been living in outright rebellion against our creator ever since the day that, that, that sin first entered the world. We're, we're prideful, we're selfish, we're arrogant, we're boastful. We're insolent, we're rebellious. We cast off God's correction. And it's kind of like saying, wait till your dad gets home. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to bring judgment 
against sin. The Old Testament calls that the great and glorious day of the Lord. When he comes back, if you are standing with the Lord, it will be a great and glorious day. But if you're still standing in rebellion, if you're still standing against the Lord, if you're outside, it's not going to be a great and glorious day for you. Jesus is bringing a reckoning for the sin of the earth. He is bringing judgment to the earth when he comes back. But God made a promise. God promised that in the last days, we're living in the last days before Jesus returns. This era of history that we're living, the era that began about 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, that era is called the last days because it is the last days before Jesus returns on the day of the Lord with judgment against sin. So, So God says, look, in these last days, I'm going to pour out my Holy Spirit and I'm going to save you. I'm going to save you from that judgment. I'm going to save you from that reckoning by forgiving your sins. God promised two things, to give the Holy Spirit and to forgive our sins. That's the first part of what Peter is talking about. God made a promise. The second thing that Peter says in his sermon is this, God kept his promise. He fulfilled his word. When God says something, it happens. When God makes a promise, he delivers. God doesn't promise something that he, that he doesn't do. God made a promise and God kept his promise. And just like God's promise uh, was made through, uh, through, God made two promises, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, God kept his promise through two events. And Peter lines out those events for us in Acts chapter two. The first thing, God kept his promise through two events. The first event is this, Jesus' death. Jesus' death. Look at verse 22. Peter, he's given God's promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then verse 22, he says this. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Here's how God kept his promise. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Jesus worked miracles. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus raised the dead. That means Jesus was from God. He did things that only God could do. Verse 23, this man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Jesus' death on the cross wasn't an accident. It wasn't a failed mission. It was by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge that Jesus would be handed over and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now, unless we start thinking that that is not about us, because we live 2,000 years after that happened, we're just as guilty. We're the wicked men that he talks about in in that verse. It's our sin, it's your sin, it's my sin that put Jesus on the cross. If I had been there, I would have held the hammer, I would have held the nail, and so would have you. We are guilty of the same thing by putting Jesus to death by nailing him on the cross. Verse 24, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Jesus' death was part of God's plan. God kept his promise 
in two ways. One, through Jesus' death, and the second one, we've just seen, God kept his promise through Jesus' resurrection. He, made, he promised two things, and he kept his promise in two ways. God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. And then Peter talks about what was prophesied in the Old Testament. Just like Jesus' death was part of God's plan, Jesus' resurrection was also part of God's plan. Look at verse 25. David said about him, David, King David, David is famous for killing Goliath. You remember the David and Goliath story in the Old Testament, among many other things. David wrote most of the book of Psalms in the Old Testament. And Peter's going to quote from David from Psalm 16. David said about Jesus in Psalm 16, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, David wrote these words. I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. David did not write these words about himself. He couldn't have because he died. His bones are in his tomb. His body is decayed. This could not be about David. David didn't write this about himself. David's dead. But verse 30, but David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Jesus' death was part of God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and Jesus' resurrection was part of God's plan prophesied a thousand years before by King David. David died and was buried, but God raised Jesus to life. Jesus' body didn't see decay and now Jesus has everlasting life, eternal life. Verse 33, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Jesus ascended into heaven after he was raised. For David did not ascend to heaven, verse 34. And yet he said, now he's going to quote another psalm from David, Psalm 110. David wrote this, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See, David's not writing that about himself either because David did not ascend into heaven. David died and was buried. He's still in the tomb. He's still in the ground. Jesus died. Jesus was raised and Jesus ascended into heaven. And David's writing this psalm a thousand years before Jesus and he's saying, look, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, our Savior, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's prophesying this about Jesus. And this is the conclusion that Peter comes to based on these passages. Verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah. God made a promise 
Forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. God kept his promise through Jesus' death and resurrection. That promise was testified to by the Old Testament prophets and by the eyewitness testimony of the apostles who saw Jesus physically resurrected. And God's promise is kept because Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. What does the word Messiah mean? Well, in the Greek, it's just the word Christos. That's where we get the word Christ from. It means God's anointed one, God's special chosen son. We think that the the word Christ, we often use it as a name, Jesus Christ. It's like his last name. But actually, it's a title, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is God's anointed son who was sent by God to save his people from their sins. When Jesus was about to be born, the angel came to Mary and he said, uh, you're going to have a son and he will save the people from their sins. He will be God's anointed son, the Christ, the Messiah, who will save his people from their sins. And, And Peter says, look, God has made Jesus this. He is Lord and Messiah. As the Messiah, God's chosen son, God's anointed son, who was sent to save the people from their sins, as the Messiah, as the Christ, Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. Now, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus is God in the flesh. God the Son who became a man to forgive our sins. So God's keeping his promise to forgive our sins by sending his son to die on the cross so that we could be forgiven. Jesus as the Messiah has that authority. And as the Lord, Jesus has the authority to pour out his Holy Spirit. Lord means exalted. It means ruler. It means power. It means authority. Jesus is not just the Savior. He is the Lord. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He has been exalted into heaven. And he has received the Holy Spirit from the Father and he has poured out his Holy Spirit that we saw last week in Acts chapter 2. God is keeping his promise through the death and resurrection of Jesus because he is Lord and Messiah. He has the authority to fulfill God's promise. This promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit kept through Jesus' death and resurrection is the heart of Christianity. That's why a few, uh, a little bit later, In the Bible, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. In the very beginning of Ephesians, the first chapter, in verse 7, Paul writes this. In him, he's writing about Jesus, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. What does that mean? That means the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Because of Jesus' death on the cross, he paid the penalty of our sin. And because of his blood poured out for us, we have the forgiveness of sins. And then just a few verses down, in verse 13, Paul writes, uh, he continues on, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. 
When you believed, you were marked in him with the Holy Spirit. God's promise to forgive our sins and God's promise to give us his Holy Spirit. Now, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit. His indwelling presence comes into you and it's kind of like God's way of writing his name on you. You ever go to a cookout and there's the little, uh, the little red plastic cups and you write your name on the cup with a sharpie so that everybody knows whose cup is yours because we're germaphobes? Well, God's Holy Spirit is like God's sharpie written on your soul. God looks at you and he sees his Holy Spirit and he says, yep, yep, that one belongs to me. That's my son. That's my daughter. That one's mine. It's God's mark. It's God's seal. It's God's presence in you. That's why he gives us the Holy Spirit. It's God's way of writing his name on our heart, in our mind, in our lives, in our souls. God made a promise. God kept his promise. And now the promise is for you. That's the third point. God's offer that he made right here in the, in the scriptures 2,000 years ago, his offer still stands. The question is, will you take it? Will you take it? God's promise was two things, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. God kept his promise through two events, Jesus' death and resurrection. And God's promise to receive it has two conditions. Look at verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We have been living in rebellion against God. The last days are here. The Messiah is going to return. He's going to bring judgment against our sin. We put him to death. What do we do now? They were convicted. What do we do now? Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000 people received Christ and were saved when the Holy Spirit was poured out and Peter delivered the first sermon God made a promise, God kept his promise, now the promise is for you, God's promise has two conditions. The first condition is this, repentance. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent. What do we do? We've been living in rebellion against God. What do we do? Peter says, repent. What does it mean to repent? It doesn't just mean to come to the front and fill out a little card. It doesn't just mean to come in the front and cry and say, I'm sorry, and then go out and live your life the same way you've always lived it. To repent literally means turn around. That's what it means. I have been living with my back to God and my face to the world. I have been doing everything that I want to do for my own life to get what I want out of life. And Peter says, no, if you want to be saved, if you want your sins to be forgiven, repent, turn around. Put the world at your back. Put God in front of you. Put Christ in front of you. 
Turn around and walk in a new path. That's what repentance means. There is no savior, there is no saving without repentance. There is no saving from sin. We cannot accept and receive this promise that God made us unless we are willing to turn our back on our sin, to turn from the evil and the darkness and the wickedness that is in the world and to say, I'm not going to live that way anymore. I have died to that way of life. My sin is dead to me now. I used to be an alcoholic, but now I'm not. I used to struggle with pornography, but now I am turning my back on that. I used to scream at my wife, but now I don't do that anymore. I used to scream at my kids, but now I don't do that anymore. I am turning my back on my sin. Will I always be perfect all the time? No. That's why Jesus gives us forgiveness. But the the point is the direction of your heart. Is your heart facing the world or is your heart facing Christ? If we want to receive the promise of forgiveness, we have to repent. We have to turn from our old way of life so that we can put Jesus in front of us and follow him. That's the first condition. The second condition is faith in Jesus. Continuing on verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. What is he talking about? He's talking about declaring your faith in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is all about. We had a baptism service here a few weeks ago, and we talked about how baptism is a public declaration of your faith in Christ. It's like a birth announcement. I've just been born again into God's family and I am declaring that faith publicly through baptism. Peter says, look, if you want to receive God's promise, you don't, it's, not, it's not the actual act of getting dunked that saves you. It is the declaration of faith in Christ that saves you. You have to repent from your sin and you have to declare, I trust Jesus. I am following Jesus. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my God. That's what God's promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what he's talking about. I am calling on a new name for my life. When I'm sick, who do I call? Jesus. When I'm sad, who do I call? Jesus. When I'm lonely, who do I call? Jesus. When I'm celebrating something good in my life, who do I celebrate with? Jesus. When I am needing guidance and wisdom and I don't know what I'm going to do, where do I turn? Jesus. I am calling a new name for my life. God has written his name on my heart through his Holy Spirit. I have a new name. I have a new identity. I declare that I follow Jesus. That's what he's talking about. And when we do that, we receive forgiveness of sin and we receive the Holy Spirit. That's the the second half of the verse. Get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the declaration of your faith and you will get the promise, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between knowing this message that Peter preached and accepting this message that Peter preached. Many, many people today sit in churches week after week, year after year, decade after decade, and if you say, what is the gospel? They can spell it out for you. If you give them a pop quiz, they'll ace the test. 
Because they know the truth. They know this message. They've heard this message. We talk about this all the time and they know it. But there's a difference between knowing it and accepting it. There's a difference between believing that it is true for you and believing that it is true of you. Is this message the defining truth of your life? Is it the bedrock of who you are? Is it the core of your identity? There is a difference between knowing the gospel and accepting the gospel. And Peter, in verse 41, pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He was calling them not just to know this message, not just to acknowledge that, yes, sure, maybe it's true, but to actually receive it as true for you of you. This is who I am. I belong to Jesus. God's name is written in my soul. The Holy Spirit lives in me. That is my identity. That is who I am. I have received that. That is the truth on which I build my life. That is who I am. These three points are the bedrock of what it means to be a Christian. God made a promise. Forgiveness of sin and the Holy Spirit. God kept his promise by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross and by raising him to life. And now... That promise is for you. Will you repent and will you declare your faith in Jesus? It's not enough to hear it. You have to choose to accept it for you. You have to believe it and you have to receive it. I'm going to invite Stephanie back up. When I was preparing for this message this week, I had a a really strong impression from the Lord that he wants to save somebody this morning. There's somebody who is sitting in these seats who has heard this message, maybe for the first time today, maybe for a long time, I don't really know. You've known it, but you haven't accepted it. You've believed it, but you haven't received it for you. You have to take that step to personally accept this message. And here's what I would say. I think there's a reason why Peter used baptism as an illustration of declaring your faith. It's one thing to think in your mind, yes, I will receive that. It's another thing to declare that with your mouth. Paul said in Romans uh, chapter 10, uh, verses 9 through 10, that if we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if we declare with our mouth, then we are saved. Because with the heart you believe in are justified, it's with the mouth that you declare and are saved. There's something about saying it out loud that changes it in your heart and in your mind. So I'm going to invite us to stand. We're going to pray, and then Stephanie's going to lead us in song. And, and when she's singing, while she's singing, if you need to accept this message as true of you, if you want to accept God's promise... And claim that promise for your life. While we're singing this song, just talk to God out loud. And tell him, I'm a sinner. I've lived in rebellion against you. I've had my back turned to you. But I want to follow Jesus. So I'm going to turn around from my sin. I'm going to put my back to my old way of life. And I'm going to live for 
Christ, I receive the promise. And I ask for your Holy Spirit to write your name on my soul and to fill my heart. If you pray something like that in your own words, out loud to God, you will receive this promise. God's offer still stands. Will you take it? Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, I pray that you would call your Holy Spirit would call somebody, whoever it is that, that you were putting on my heart to pray about all week, God, I just, I ask that you would, you would move in their heart and in their mind right now, Lord, that you would convict them of their sin, that they would be able to acknowledge and confess, just as I have done, I am a sinner. I have no hope apart from Jesus. I've done too many bad things to outweigh them with good things. God, that they would acknowledge that and that they would put their faith in you. That we would receive the freedom of not having to try hard to be a good person in order to be saved, but that we would receive the freedom of calling on your name and resting in your work on the cross so that we don't have to work really hard to try to keep all the rules. We can rest in what you've done for us and we can be filled with your spirit. Lord, call that person. Call that person.